Good morning. So uh, my name's uh, Dave Nystrom, and I'm a, a professor at Western Seminary, mostly New Testament. Do you care? Do you want to know a little bit more? Do you, not everyone cares. So, uh, so uh, yeah, so Western Seminary is based in Portland, Oregon, but it has satellite campuses, and one is here in Sacramento. Andre is uh, one of the prize students there. So I've been my, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not just saying that. I do say stuff like that sometimes, but this is really, <laughs> this is actually the truth. Uh, wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, so, uh, uh, so yeah, I'm a professor of New Testament there. My background, my specialty is, is New Testament, uh, although I also publish in Roman social history and uh, Renaissance Reformation and church history, which means I'm lots of fun at parties. Uh, <laughs> it sounds so boring when I say it. <laughs> so... And Wayne, your pastor, is a, is a friend of mine. He was my student years ago. And I just, as I was thinking about that, I realized, you know, it, it used to be that I thought I could imagine students out of me as just like maybe their older brother. And then I was more like parent. And now I'm sort of, I'm, I think I'm approaching, how, how shall I put this? Um, the horizon is closer than the start point of origin on my trip. So uh, I'm more like grandpa now. So... That's kind of depressing, I think, as I think about that. So uh, um, anyway, so Wayne's a good friend of mine, former student, and uh, have, have a great, a great respect for him. And, and uh, we get together, I don't know, once maybe, about once a month for lunch and just, what's the word? What do guys do? Well, they don't share their feelings very often. So talking about sports probably is what we do. So uh, OK. So. Um, in the middle of a three-week series uh, that uh, we're calling, or I'm calling, um, yeah, Portraits of Jesus. And so there are three theological geniuses that work in the New Testament. There are nine authors in the New Testament, um, and three of them are uh, commonly regarded as uh, being a, of just uh, surpassing insight and, uh, and depth of, of, of understanding John. Paul and whoever wrote Hebrews. So we looked at John last week. Today we're going to look at Hebrews. Uh, I'm sorry, Paul, and then next week Hebrews. So uh, that's what it says there. Paul and his portrait of Jesus. So um, when I first got to seminary, when I was in seminary, I heard for the first time uh, 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 teaching on Christology, which is doctrine of who Jesus is, or doctrine of Christ, doctrine of Jesus, and I heard the words uh, uh, his person and his work. I'd never heard that phrase before, but that's pretty typical when, uh, in an academic setting about uh, discussing Jesus, his person, who he is, and his work, what he does. I heard his person and his work, and I just thought, like, Saturday morning chores around the house. It just seemed really horrible. So, uh, but what it means is, who is he, and what has he accomplished? So... Uh, Two passages are the signal passages in Paul, those are the first two listed, Philippians 2 and Colossians 1, where he reflects on, on who Jesus is. And then there are a number of places where he reflects on what he has accomplished. And, the, and it, we, we, could, we could talk for, you know, from here until next Sunday at this time nonstop about what he's accomplished, but I've chosen to uh, limit it to um, this uh, 
this really signal central idea uh, that we are, you may remember that Jean-Jacques Rousseau said we're born free but everywhere we are in chains. The New Testament has it the other way around. We're born in chains. You know, we're born slaves. We're born slaves to several things and one of those actually is one of those things is our, is our own uh, foolish, stupid desire. Right? We have that, I'm sure you've probably experienced that already today. That which I don't want to do, I end up doing. You know, here we are, our brain tells us, go walk here, and, and we walk there. But our brain says, don't do this, and we do it anyway. So we're, we're caught. So we're slaves to certain things, and then we're set free for certain things. So that's where we're going today, okay? Okay. One person nodded in agreement, so that's awesome. That's all I need. So uh, just as in a, this is sort of a, also by way of introduction. Um, you know, we typically think of sermons as you sit there and listen, or at least you look like you're listening. You know, when I was a really little kid, did you do this? Uh, there were the, we used to have the, the attendance little cards, you know, in the pew ahead. And like, so we got, I mean, I, how many tanks did I draw, you know, firing at other tanks, you know, when I was a, a little kid. And then in, then in high school, it's more like, or junior high, it's like, oh my Lord, I can't wait for this to be over. I remember when I was maybe 12, my parents bought me a watch, my first watch. And I was so excited. And in those, uh, we were sitting up in the front, me and my friends, maybe the second row. And it got to be 12 o'clock and then 12.01 and 12.02 when I thought, clearly the pastor is not aware of the time. <laughs> so at 12.03, I just raised my arm like this and, and, and pointed, <laughs> to my, pointed to my watch. <laughs> so which, which caused a lot of laughter of all my parents' friends and embarrassment, sheer embarrassment uh, on the part of my parents. So, I mean, mostly, we kind of endure sermons, right? Yes, we kind of endure them, and we, and, uh, and we hope that uh, it's going to be interesting enough that we'll kind of stay focused here and there. If it's 30 minutes long, if we're, if we're concentrating, you know, episodically on maybe a total of eight, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. Um, but sermons weren't always that way. Uh, so Augusta, when he was Bishop of Hippo, you can see his dates. So we lived, you know, 1,600 years ago, uh, 1,700 years ago. Uh, we, we have, and he preached four or five times a week. And I don't mean just four Sunday sermons. I mean four different sermons, like Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I mean, they didn't have TV or the Internet in those days, so there wasn't a whole lot to do. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but and, and we have the transcripts of about two or 300 of those. And actually, when you read those transcripts, they're more participatory events. People are talking back to him. They're arguing. There are times they're saying, that's enough, we're leaving right now. You know, but it's right there in the text. And at one point he even says, wow, why aren't you paying attention? Don't you see how hard I'm working? I'm turning myself inside out for you to try to keep you interested. So today, I'm, not, I'm hoping you won't say, that's it, we're leaving. Uh, but uh, this is going to be a little more participant, uh, a little part, uh, bit more of a participatory experience. So... More like directed discussions. So we're going to look at those first two passages, these signal passages on who Jesus is, and we're just going to talk about them. And I'm going to ask a very basic question over and over again, what do you see? So uh, as you can see, there's, uh, what is that, 11 minus 5 is, I believe, 6. Is that right? I'm not really good at math. I have to do the Mr. Ed thing with my feet to get that. But I think that's only six verses. So Paul begins, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be. And the word there is, it's hard to translate, grasped, snatched at, taken advantage of. 
So if you think about it, grasp means it's, not, it's something that's not his, but he's reaching for it. Whereas taken advantage of is something that's his, he's just not utilizing it. And so the Greek word, it's a very odd word, but, but uh, so we're, they're not really, we're not completely sure what it means. It's an unusual word in that it doesn't occur very often. Um, so whatever it is, he didn't consider his divinity, his equality with God, something that he could utilize in the moment. But he made himself nothing. So clearly, to make yourself something less than you are, there, you know, he, Paul's saying something about his equality with God. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So what, what, what do you see? There's the, I'm going to say those words like 90 times in the next 20 minutes. What do you see? Humility. Exactly. Right. Now, humility, hum, humility is not, oh, I'm, I'm horrible, I'm a worm. Humility is um, recognizing that you're not the center of the universe, number one. What else do you see? And so now, with your, your, your definition of, of grasp, sort of uh, a functionality, sort of a, a pragmatic approach. So it's more like, if it's something that you can't utilize, and he's, he's definitely sort of pragmatic about what he's yeah, I mean, he's taking, he's choosing less than he can, than he can take advantage of. So it's a, it's a conscious choice. What else do you see? Yeah. Freed up. Freed up. He's, yeah, it's just like giving up everything that is around him to be more concerned and focused on what's most important. I'm not sure I follow. So he's made this choice, but he's got a very focused, got a very focused plan. Is that what you're saying? Apparently not. To be, to be led to be focused. Okay. All right. What else do you see? He's chosen servanthood. Yeah, he's, he's chosen. Not a slave. He's not a he's slave. He's chosen servanthood. Yeah, and the word, the word is doulos, which can, if you look it up in the dictionary, it can be either slave or servant. Whereas for us, those, those are clearly different. But in the ancient world, when uh, you could be, you could be uh, found yourself in slavery all, for all kinds of reasons. And if you were a household slave, you would be set free by the age of 30. Whereas if you were a rural slave, then you were, you, that was a lifetime uh, sentence. So there were different, even though it's crazy for us to think about, there are different gradations of slavery. But still, no one says, awesome, slavery, sign me up. Yes? Yeah, um, so I, the, the, nuance I, I, the, the nuance I think this is fair is um, you can pretend to be one, like you can play one for Halloween, but you're not actually doing it. <laughs> you can dress like it, but to actually take on that character as opposed to pr simply projecting the image. Yes? Yeah, yeah, 
And it's, yep, confidence, volitional. No one's forcing this on him. Yep. The contrast between God, who is infinite, and his choice, man, which is not. But I think that humble, unpack that a bit more. It's not, but it's not quite nothing. I mean, he comes a servant and he, and he becomes human. So likeness, we think, likeness could be like, once again, like wearing a Halloween costume. For them, likeness icon is more, takes, on, takes, takes it on, not just as pretending. It's that phrase, he made himself nothing. Yeah, oh, I see, I got you, yep. Okay. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled, yeah, I spelled that wrong. He humbled, not humbles. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So what do you see there? Yeah, so this notion of emptied himself, that the Greek word, it's, it's kenosis is the word. Um, you're exactly right. It's uh, of what? <laughs> you know, what, is, what does he give up? So what, and that there's endless, not just endless speculation, but, but the text doesn't, doesn't horribly specify. God is spirit. God doesn't have, God is not limited by bodies like we are. So he gives up something, what we call omnipresence. He's everywhere to become physical. That's, that, that's a severe limitation. And, um, and uh, you know, he has the power to do what we call miracles. As an aside, it's really interesting the miracles he chooses to do. If he wanted to prove he was God, like all, the whole point was just showing how, how slam-bang powerful he is, why doesn't he just juggle the pyramids? You know, that would really show people. But what he does instead is he heals people. He shows compassion. He, he demonstrates the character of God as a person as opposed, to the, as opposed to the power, just the superficial things about power of God. Um, so what does he give up and what does he become? So he becomes, he gives up some of the attributes of God without, without no longer being God. Um, but he becomes human, but not as we are. Now, what does that mean? What do I mean by that? Um, we, I think I said this last week. What we live is, is really a subhuman existence. It's less than God intended. What God intended is what Adam and Eve had in the garden. But they walked away from that. 
what Jesus lives is his perfect communication with God, the Father. So he became, uh, so he, he, he was in appearance man, human, but not us, but perfectly human. Now what else does that mean? Sometimes people say, well, Jesus wasn't really tempted because he was God. Actually, uh, it, it, it's the other way around, or maybe not the other way around. He was tempted more than any of us ever. So he actually endured temptation, but resisted. Go ahead and tempt me. Say, would you like some M&Ms, Dave? Would you like some M&Ms? No, thank you. Try again. Oh, come on. Okay. So, I mean, I gave in right away, right? I mean, right away. I mean, I, so, so I've never experienced the full force of M&M temptation. I give in immediate, almost immediately. But, the, but elsewhere in the New Testament, Hebrews will say, Jesus is the one who actually endured the full force of temptation. So he's a compassionate high priest. He knows temptation way more than we do because we've always given in before the volume came full blast. So he became a man, but fully human, not imperfectly human the way we are. What else do you see? Yes? How do you see that? Oh yeah, that's right, he died, yeah. Yeah, I mean, boy, if I was him, I'd be sure looking for some way to just like, you know, say, mm, I'll accomplish it, it's done, you know. <laughs> but wow, I mean, he, he demonstrated his, his love for us by going, you know, that, that ultimate sacrifice. And it's because he was, right, this is kind of wild, look at verse 9. It's because he was obedient to that that God exalted him. So he's, he's already God, and yet exalted him to what? Um, pardon? Above all of us. Above all of us, yeah. And gave him the name of every name. That the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you see there? Pardon? In terms of the suffering? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. So there's a... So part of the of the building blocks from the Old Testament that form Jesus' self-understanding is the, is the suffering servant idea. 45 is a part of that. There are four songs of the servant from Isaiah 42 through 40 through 53. So it's this, this person who does God's will not by being like a heroic warrior, but by suffering. Um, the, the route of suffering is the way, the route of weakness uh, is the way to overcome evil. Well, I guess there's knees that could to bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. <laughs> right? So earth is us, 
heaven or the heavenly beings, but under the earth is like me. There, there are forces out there that are, that are evil forces that hold you ill will. Yeah, yeah. And going back, look at that very first line. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. I mean, if you're, if you're a believer and, and your Lord and Savior had this attitude, I mean, what do you think God thinks when you're thinking you're all that? <laughs> wow. Okay, next one. This is the other great passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. What do you, what do you see there? Authority, yep. Yeah, you try to depict, well, you try to depict something. So the image is... To sort of vicariously show us? Well, he's the person, right? So his, in physical form, he's giving the best presentation of what God is like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by nature, by definition, it's, never, it's not going to be complete. And partly it's not going to be complete because there's only a limit to what we can understand. It, what else do you see? Yes? Well, what does the idea that he is the firstborn over all creation? Like if he says things, because things by him all things were created after that. What? He was the firstborn over all creation. Yeah. Yeah, so the Bible has uh, it, it's, the language, right? Um, partly it's the limits of language, right? Language, there's only so much language can do. There's tr there are truths that go beyond language. So the Bible um, clearly, I, th I think it's clear, uh, understands these three persons as God. So the one we call God the Father, and even God the Spirit. I mean, even, even although Judaism uh, is a monotheistic religion, has one God, God the Father, but right there in the first chapter of Genesis, in the first couple of verses, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. So that's not, that's not just God the Father in a spirit Halloween costume. That's, that's something different. So there is... Uh, uh, implicit in the whole notion right from Genesis 1 1 is a is a what we call a triune God as hard as that is for us to get our brains around um, so uh, and then there is uh, clearly by the time we get to the New Testament of course there is this belief in the Son and what's remarkable is that Paul as a Jew and as a, as a Pharisee someone who was near the top of the heap in terms of their intellectual culture within a couple of years, came to believe that Jesus was this. I mean, that, that's pretty remarkable. So how does the Bible talk about it? Sometimes, you know, John talks about Jesus as, the, as like the, the monogamous. The, so the Greek word monogamous, mono, 
one, genes, like gune, gynecology, so only begotten or unique begotten. So what verb can you use to say the son is different than the father and yet still God? So it's not saying he's born, but he's the first, you know, he's, the, he's before anything else. Premier, yeah, yeah. So. The thing about that is that you're in your idea of the perfect man. The perfect man has existed from eternity. Amen. He is the first unique man. Well, I wouldn't say I don't think he's he's not man here. He becomes perfectly human. He, that's Adam. When he enters the when he enters the earth, he fulfills that. That that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, son, I don't want you to. I don't want. I don't want us to to, to to waffle into heresy here, but son uh, doesn't have to be human. So the person we call Jesus, Jesus is the name for the guy who's walking around Palestine. It isn't this, exactly the same thing as the second person of the Trinity. So he becomes human, perfectly human. But he is not the same thing as the Father. But existed from eternity. Yeah. So then, would you say right now Jesus has absolutely no humanity? That was a temporary thing? Well, I think that's a, that's a, um, the resurrected Jesus bears the mark, the marks of his punishment. So to say that doesn't continue would not be accurate. But notice he is, he is the agent of, he's the creative agent. So we talk about God creating, but this says it's Jesus, the person we call Jesus is doing the, is doing the creating, is the agent for it. And there are thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, and they were all made by him and for him. Now, the fact of the matter is there are rulers and authorities who don't care anything for what God wants. So those rulers and authorities and powers, they've got their own will, like we do. So, but they're originally created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. What else do you, what do you see there? Yeah. Yeah. We don't normally think of it that way. I, I don't think. I think we normally think of, you know, if you're exalted, you should stay there. But there's a, there's a model there for us for, that speaks perhaps to our interdependence with one another.
Yeah. Yeah, th that's exactly, this is so interesting. It was firstborn in creation, now he's the firstborn among the, those who are resurrected. So he is the leader, you could put it this way, of what it means to be alive and human. He's the leader of that from creation, but he's also the one who leads the way after the fall to bring us back to true life in both, in both cases. Yeah, you know, they have, so they have this, we, we, ha, we carry this, um, we still carry in, in our culture parts of this idea, but I think we mentioned this last week, but to be the son of or the daughter of something is to be like the one to which you're compared. So a true son is just like the father. A true daughter is just like the mother. So we even, we even preserve that, we say she, she's her mother's daughter. But for them, it's, it has more, it's got even more legal force. So we, we secure as an agent, we want to find, if we want to sell a house, we're going to find an expert in house selling. But they, th their idea of the best agent isn't an expert. The agent you want is someone who would make the same decision you would make if you were there. That's a whole different way of, of thinking about it. So being the firstborn from among the dead, it's also, he, he, is, he is open the path, he's open, he's blazed the trail for all of us who are going to pass away and die for the next life. So he's the one who, who initiates life because he's the creator of everything and he's the one who initiates a second chance at life. That he might have the supremacy in everything. For God was pleased, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I just typed this this morning. Pleased, not pleased, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What do you see there? If you're wondering how much longer, we've got about eight minutes more. So just in, just in case that's what you're worried about right now. If one of you raises your hand and starts tapping on your wrist, yeah, there, then I'll, I'll know we're, uh, we've gone too long. What do you see there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how would we describe someone who is fully God but takes on, actually takes on human form? Doesn't just pretend, not just wearing a human Halloween costume, but actually takes on human form. I mean, th this is how Paul does it. God's fullness, whatever that means, complete person of God is, in, is him, even though he is condescending to be, be uh, not just appear, but to exist in the confines of what it means to be human. 
And look at God wants to reconcile to himself all things. So what that suggests none right now is that um, things right now are unreconciled. Things right now are, uh, as my grandpa used to say, cattywampus. That was an old-fashioned term. So um, just in the privacy of your own thoughts, think about, like, um, think about your ride here with, with your family. Are ev- is everything reconciled? Uh, and how, much, how, how strenuously do we seek to reconcile things? Don't we pretty much live a lot of the time uh, in uh, uh, awareness that things aren't exactly right? But things are calm. They have the appearance of peace. So that word peace, he reconciled himself by making peace through his blood. Peace. That's an that's a interesting concept. So the Latin words are, are, are um, uh, pax, like pax romana, and concordia, like concord. But these words mean... And, and even the Greek word, like Irene, Irene, the woman's name Irene is based on that, the Greek word Irene, which means peace. But these words mean the absence of tension. They don't mean peace. So Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes a, 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 a book called The Agricola, it's about his father-in-law, and it, it's about, um, uh, the action takes place in in what is today Scotland, the Caledonians, the Romans have defeated the Caledonians. And this one guy named Glaugacus is looking at the battlefield, and there are thousands, 20, 30, 40,000 corpses there on the battlefield of Scots who have been killed in the battle. And Glaugacus says about the Romans, they make a desert and call it peace. So, yeah, have you ever noticed how remarkable? The uniformity and, 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 and adulation for Soviet or Russian leaders are, I mean, they, they always win like 98% of the vote. You know, it's just remarkable, you know. Boy, if you don't want, here's how you don't have opposition. Murder everyone who's opposed to you. And suddenly, you get, you get 100%. You know, if you, if you hire a helicopter to, to fly over your backyard and dump 50,000 gallons of Roundup, there are no weeds in your backyard. But there's nothing growing there either. So, so the absence of tension isn't true peace. What, what Paul is saying here is that what Christ has done makes possible true peace. Shalom, you could say shalom, the Hebrew word is what it takes for good to grow. That's totally the opposite. That's something very different than destroying all opposition. Okay, I've got now... Uh, I'm going to move ahead. I've got now three minutes until you start looking at, at topping your watch. So, um, so bigger picture, though, back up a little bit now, switch to, okay, what has Christ accomplished? The basic idea uh, in the New Testament, the basic idea in the New Testament, I would say even in the ancient world generally, is that we human beings are broken and we can't fix ourselves. This, if you think about what if you remember way back in high school, maybe you maybe have vague memories of, of the Greek playwrights, and they basically say, what, what's the whole point of, the, of most of those plays is, wow, if we let human desire run unchallenged, bad things happen. So you, you should you know aim aim for um, uh, aim for some humility, but they had no. They turn away from from you know from over overpowering uh, self-interest, but they had no answer. Turn to 
turn to what? That, that's the story over and over and over, and all those, whether it's the, the story of, of, of Achilles or whether it's the story of, of Antigone or whatever. So we're broken and we can't fix ourselves. So Paul says, you know what, we are, we are safe from certain things. We're safe from Satan. Before, before Jesus had, was crucified, dead, and resurrected, we were, we were the playthings of Satan. But those enemies have been, Paul says in Galatians 3.22, triumphed over by the cross. We're also set, slaves to our own sinful nature. That's what he means by slaves to sin. We have this, we have this inclination to self-interest, and, and we're going to lose. You know? Even though I can, I can resist here and there, but by the end of the day, end of the week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail. That's me. Am I the only one? We're going to fail. So we're slaves to that. That which I don't want to do, I end up doing. But Paul says, because of what Christ has accomplished, we can live free of that. And the New Testament uses four different images, major ones. Um, temple image, so that taint is removed. Um, a law court image, right? We're guilty, but Christ paid the penalty. Battlefield image, you know, Christ is defeated, uh, has defeated the powers. So different images to make, the same, to make the same point. And Paul also says we're slaves to culture. So some of you are looking at your phones right now. And I'm assuming that some of you are actually like reading a text, the biblical text, not a text. Uh, but, but, I mean, I, I, but I think we all know that like, somehow technology has been like this thing that, just, uh, that allows our, some of the things in us that are not the most healthy to, to get just wildly expanded. So I have a, a number of students in a class right now that's, that's one that's like the first class for people who are, who are on their way to becoming ministers, and it's, all, it's a lot of it's about spiritual formation. It's just been reading a whole bunch of their very honest appraisals and, and like, wow, the stuff that they're addicted to because of technology. So, I mean, culture has a huge effect on how we think, on capturing us, and, and maybe even... even directing us in ways that aren't all that wholesome. So we're slaves to all those three things. But Paul says we can be set free from those because of the power of Christ. We can, we can live into something else. The cell door has been sprung open. It's like once, if we're in a cell and, 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 the, and the cell door is closed, we can't get out. But it's sprung open. And then Paul says, okay, why are you still living in the cell then? You're still living there. So what do we say for? Life in the Spirit. That's his contrast. The Spirit of the living God, we saw this last week, dwells in you. Learn how to open, expand that place. If you live according to the Spirit, then you aren't living according to your sinful nature. So multiply that, feed that part, start the other part. True community. So not fake community, but true community. This is the body image where we actually need, we recognize we need one another instead of just condescending that the others exist. I'm old enough now, I'm, I'm familiar at least with some of the ways in which I'm really screwed up. And I, I know I need, I need I'm, I'm not omnicompetent. I need others 
help me see, help me chart a path, and then finally to be ambassadors. Ambassadors live in a country not their own. As Christians, we are not, we are citizens of heaven, uranapolitai. That's what Paul says. We're not primarily citizens of this earth. We're ambassadors. But ambassadors are from a different country, and they live in the one that's not their own. So we live, in, we live on this world. But ambassadors ought to understand the country in which they live, and they ought to have affection for the people and the, and the culture of the country, recognizing that it's not their own. So our attitude to our neighbors ought to be, wow, we, we represent a, we represent a, a life that, is in te- that you were intended for, and we want to anneal you towards it. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm a little bit over, but thank you for not tapping your, 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 not your, I could say your phones, your phone also has the clock on it. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that um, although we deserve it, you haven't seen fit to vaporize us in an instant. But instead, you've called us to yourself. And you seek for us to be remade in your image. May it be our heart's desire to follow you on that path. These things we pray. And all God's people said...